Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer, and this is the Norman Invasion Part 4, the Siege of Wexford and the Conquest of Leinster. In this gripping episode, the Norman Invasion of Ireland gains pace with the arrival of hundreds of mercenaries from Wales. When they are unleashed on the battlefields of Ireland, we will see torrents of arrows and the thunder of mounted knights indicate that this invasion may well change Ireland forever. We pick up the story in this show where we left off in part three, as hundreds of Normans, led by the knight Robert Fitzstevens, land in Banno Bay, Ireland. Before we get into this enthralling story, I want to briefly mention something that will be of interest to you. As you may know, I have been recently organising tours of medieval Dublin. These tours are a unique chance to return to the Dublin of our long-dead ancestors in the late medieval period, where war and famine went side by side with daily life. Now, unfortunately, all the tours in July are booked up, but I have now added two more dates on the 8th and 22nd of August. Places are limited, so if you want to reserve yours, just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash medieval tour. In 1169... Three ships, having crossed the Irish Sea from Wales, pulled into Banno Bay on the south coast of Ireland. To the herders, fishermen and farmers that watched from the coast, these ships no doubt seemed innocuous. They looked no different from the many merchant vessels that plied their trade around the coast. However, these ships were different. Crammed aboard were over 300 Norman mercenaries, who as a fighting unit were perhaps one of the most lethal in Europe. While this elite fighting force had ostensibly come to Ireland to fight for the one-time King of Leinster, Dermot MacMurrah, who had been deposed by his enemies, their ambitions knew no bounds. But Ireland was by no means an easy country to conquer, as we shall see. Nonetheless, even with hard fighting ahead of them, many of these Normans were happy to have arrived in Ireland. None more so than their leader, Robert Fitzstevens. On May Day 1169, as they made landfall and hauled their ships onto the shores of Banno Bay, Robert could look forward to a distinct improvement in his life no matter what happened. 
The fresh onshore winds that swept across his face on Banno Strand were no doubt a welcome change from the dank prison where he had spent the previous three years, a captive of the Welsh prince, Rhys Ap Griffith. His release had only been secured by his stepbrother Morris on the condition that he come to Ireland to fight for Dermot Machmurrah. In this sense, for Robert and many of those who landed with him on Banno Bay, setting foot in Ireland was a point of no return. Failure was not an option, as they had little to return home to. Indeed, they seemed to have had little plans ever to go back to Wales. Dermot Machmurrah, the Gaelic king, had already pledged to Fitzstephens, the town of Wexford, in return for his military service. That said, while they had left a fire in Wales, the frying pan Robert and his mercenaries had jumped into in Ireland was rather hot. Medieval Ireland in the 12th century was a pressure cooker of violence. The man he had come to fight for, Dermot Machmurrah, had numerous enemies and the previous band of Normans who had come to Ireland to help him, led by Robert Fitzgodbert, did not last long before leaving to return home. Fitzstephens was in a better position, however. As he looked around him during his first few hours in Ireland, a serious army was taking shape on Banno Bay. The beach was a commotion as the weapons, armour, war horses and provisions of 300 men were being unloaded. Better still, back in Wales, another Norman knight, Morris de Prendergast, was setting out with a further 200 men, while Fitzstephen's brother Morris was also preparing further forces. These were all just in advance for a much, much larger army still, under the Lord of Strigol, Strongbow, who was preparing to cross the Irish Sea the following year. Now once ashore, one of the first things Robert Fitzstephens did was dispatch word to the man who had induced him to come to Ireland, Dermot MacMurrah. The following day, before the Gaelic king arrived to see the troops he had hired, another two ships pulled into Banno Bay. This was Morris de Prendergast with over 200 men, the Normans at this point, in total, now numbered 40 knights, 60 men in mail and 490 archers, not to mention their followers and attendants. When Dermot MacMurrah himself arrived with his own army of 500 men, his heart must have soared. Finally, things were looking up for Dermot, who had been more or less on the run from his enemies for the previous three years. Despite the large numbers of soldiers now gathered at Banno, when MacMurrah outlined to the Norman Fitzstephens the task ahead of them, only a fool would have been certain of their chances. Dermot had numerous enemies, some of them powerful and dangerous men. Immediately west of Leinster lay the kingdom of Ossory, whose king, Gilapatric, was a bitter rival of Dermot, having recently blinded Aena, his son. Then, further to the west, lay the powerful alliance of the King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor. Many around Ireland, from the inhabitants of Dublin to the kings of Meath, Breffney and Eastern Ulster, all owed their allegiance to Rory. Taking on a powerful figure like him needed careful planning and a much bigger force. In the following months, therefore, the first phase of Dermot and his Norman allies' campaign in Ireland would be limited to taking control of Leinster, 
while they waited for more troops to arrive. By focusing on Leinster, they faced weaker forces and their chances of success were far higher. The first goal was the town nearest them at Banno, the port of Wexford, a wealthy trading town in the southeastern corner of Ireland. Taking this port would open a harbour close to Wales, but secondly, and perhaps more importantly, this had been the payment McMurra had offered to Fitzstevens, and it seems the Norman wanted his fee up front. However, this was easier said than done, as Wexford had stout defences. Given that McMurra and his Norman allies now numbered around a thousand warriors, not to mention the baggage train that accompanied them, they must have moved slowly through the Irish landscape. Their target, the town of Wexford, while only 16 or so miles from Banno, probably took them around two days' march. Keeping their impending attack secret was impossible in this scenario, and word of this army snaking its way to Wexford arrived well before McMurra and his allies, giving the town's inhabitants time to prepare. Now in 1169, Wexford was one of the largest towns in Ireland, but its population still only numbered in the low thousands. While they had advance notice of McMurra and Fitzstephen's approach, they did not fully appreciate the nature of the host bearing down on them. It seems they were unaware of the Norman mercenaries in Dermid's army. So it was, instead of retreating behind the town's walls, they opted to take the fight to their enemy in open battle. According to the Norman chronicler, Gerald of Wales, they mobilised a large force of 2,000 people, although this may well be exaggerated. When McMurray arrived and drew up for battle, to their horror, the army of Wexford saw before them the large numbers of archers, mounted knights and warriors in chainmail, not to mention the hundreds of Gaelic warriors Dermot had brought. The town's inhabitants were merchants and traders who frequented the ports of Norman England and were only too well aware of the martial prowess of this army in front of them. The very sight of knights who could simply ride them down sapped their confidence and, lacking faith in their ability to overcome such a force on the field, they quickly withdrew behind their walls. As they retreated, they set fire to all the buildings in Wexford suburbs outside the defences, creating a conflagration. Now this was a common tactic in medieval siege warfare. By burning the buildings outside the walls, they denied the attackers any protection or shelter and opened up unobstructed lines of fire onto anyone attempting to storm the walls. The hellish environment of charred timbers and remains of houses around the city now created an apt backdrop for the impending siege. The retreat behind the walls changed the nature of the upcoming battle and it forced the Normans and Dermot MacMurray into action. They couldn't wait outside the walls forever in military camps where they were vulnerable to attack, while inside the inhabitants would happily wait out the siege given that they could be supplied by the town's fleet. This situation provoked a quick assault on the town by MacMurray. A detailed account of this survives in a text called the Expugnatio Hibernica or the Invasion of Ireland by the Norman Gerald of Wales. So the attack began with infantry moving up into position in the moat of the town. The large force of Norman arrows were able to cover this advance, peppering the walls of Wexford, 
picking off anyone daring to raise a finger above the parapet. Now for the infantry moving into this moat, this must have been nerve-wracking and terrifying. At the bottom of the moat, Wexford's walls would have towered above them. Chances of success were slim. Now the arrows whizzing by over their heads were some consolation and did offer protection. But eventually, when they tried to storm Wexford's walls, the population would fight back. Once the signal was given for the attack to begin, predictably a torrent of heavy pieces of wood and stones rained down on the attackers. Unable to withstand this barrage, they withdrew, but not before they left 18 of their own dead behind them, while only inflicting three casualties on the townspeople. It was clear that Wexford would not fall easily. Unperturbed from the task at hand, the Normans and McMurrah now moved to undermine the defenders' resolve by burning the fleet of Wexford. It seems that Wexford had no docks at this stage and that the ships were merely pulled up on the shore, making them an easy target. Inside the walls, once the defenders saw the plumes of acrid smoke bellowing from the ships on the shore, their morale must have been seriously undermined. Their umbilical cord to the outside world had been severed. The following day, the army made preparations for a more planned assault. What this entailed is uncertain, but Gerald of Wales tells us they proceeded to the assault, better equipped with their tactics, more carefully thought out, supported by their skill as well as their military strength. Perhaps they'd fashioned siege ladders or battering rams, but whatever it was, it seriously unnerved the defenders and they sent forward peace messengers. And it's easy to see why they would. If Wexford was taken in an assault, they would receive no clemency. Its houses and markets would be sacked and many of the defenders put to the sword. However, if they could negotiate a peaceful handover, they might have some chance of surviving and maintaining their wealth. So it was, two bishops from Wexford met McMurrah outside the gates and they surrendered the city on the condition that four prominent inhabitants were handed over as hostages. Once in possession of the town, Dermot MacMurrah fulfilled the agreement he had made to the Norman mercenaries in Wales in 1167, that if they came to Ireland, he would amply reward them. And he handed over Wexford to Robert Fitzstevens, who was to rule it with his half-brother Morris, who was on his way to Ireland. Meanwhile, another Norman who was with the host, Hervey de Montmorency, was awarded a large tract of territory along the south coast of Ireland. Now Montmorency was an uncle of Strongbow, the Lord of Strigol, and this grant was a reminder that a huge Norman army was being amassed in Wales, three times the size of Robert Fitzstephen's force. The result of the siege of Wexford saw the first pieces of Ireland placed under Norman control. Even though they had arrived essentially as mercenaries, the conquest, albeit an unorthodox one, had begun. Having secured the port of Waterford, the Normans were now happy to wage war to restore Dermot MacMurrah to power as King of Leinster. The most immediate and serious threat to Dermot was not actually within Leinster, but from the neighbouring kingdom of Ossory. Dermot would never be secure while its king, Gilapathric, maintained his power. When Dermot had been driven into exile in 1166, 
Gilapatric had taken a huge swathe of his territory. Then the enmity between the two had only grown by Diarmid's return. And as I mentioned earlier, in 1168, Gilapatric had blinded Diarmid's son, Aena. So it's little surprise, really, that Diarmid, after taking Wexford, led his army to take on this rival. Now, this was where Diarmid's Norman host could excel. During the siege of Wexford, the mounted knights had played little role in the attack on the walled town. However, the impending invasion of Osri promised conflict on open ground, a situation where the knights excelled. That said, if the fighting took place in wooded or boggy land, they would be rendered more or less useless again. But the Normans, however, were masters of tactics on the battlefield and they wouldn't get drawn into such an environment. Instead, they had strategies to lure Gilapatric and his army into suitable ground. They began by feigning an attack on what was unsuitable territory, before then retreating. Naturally, in this situation, the army of Austria, thinking that they were winning, followed in pursuit until they reached open ground. It was here that Fitzstevens and his dozens of mounted knights could use the expansive open space and solid ground. They wheeled around and swept down on Gilapatric's army. This was the first time heavy cavalry of this form had been deployed in Ireland and it was devastating. What developed can only have been a truly terrifying experience for the victims. As the mounted knights bore down on Gilapatric's force, the ground would have shaken underfoot. When they smashed into the Gaelic army, they simply rode them down. Amidst the chaos of horses trampling those who fell, the mounted knights rained blows with swords and maces as the tank-like horses shattered the army into ineffectual units. After this, the Gaelic Irish of MacMurra moved in with axes and routed the remaining disorientated warriors. This victory was brutal and total. Nevertheless, no matter how terrifying the cavalry had been, Gilapatric did not submit. But arguably what was more important from Diarmid's perspective was that he had been eliminated as a threat. Diarmid could now move on with his campaign to secure his kingdom of Leinster. He next moved into modern Kildare where, through raiding and devastation, the Normans subdued the powerful Phelan family there. At this point, perhaps feeling secure, he decided he would turn back on Gilapatric. As Diarmid invaded Austria again, it seems Gilapatric had learned his lesson and withdrew into forests where the heavy cavalry could not follow. Diarmid at this point seems to have been happy enough with his first major campaign and he returned to Ferns, the settlement where he and his family had been based for centuries. His allies had already proven their worth. Within a few short months, he had reasserted his authority in Leinster in pretty stunning form. He was already, no doubt, beginning to think about greater things and how and when he could take on the power of Rory O'Connor in the West. However, nothing in life is simple and his dreams of greatness were burst rather suddenly when internal division and rancour spoiled his victory. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Not long after Dearmid's great campaign in Osri, the Norman knight, Maurice de Prendergast, announced that he was withdrawing from Ireland, along with the ten knights and nearly 200 archers who had accompanied him. Why he did this is inexplicable, but for Dearmid MacMurrah, it was a potential disaster. At this point, he was waiting on further troops from Wales under Strongbow, but if Maurice returned home, it could perhaps make Strongbow reassess his plans about coming to Ireland. Dearmid correctly perceived he had to act decisively, but the manner in which he dealt with de Prendergast was disastrous. As de Prendergast set out for Wexford to sail home, Dearmid sent word ahead of him that he was to be denied passage from the port. This was a really foolish move. Trying to force the hand of a soldier of fortune like de Prendergast was never going to work. The Normans simply upped the stakes, creating a very dangerous position for Dearmid. As a mercenary, Maurice de Prendergast had very little loyalty to Dearmid. So now, to force his hand, he decided he would switch sides and went to Gilapatric, Dearmid's bitter rival, and offered his services. Gilapatric, the King of Osri, probably couldn't believe his luck and certainly didn't look this gift horse in the mouth and immediately took the Norman into his army. As the eventful year of 1169 moved towards its final winter months, Dearmid now suddenly looked a tad vulnerable and things were about to get worse. Up to this point, the events I've been discussing were largely limited to the Kingdom of Leinster and seemed to many just the latest round of interminable quarrels that dominated interdynastic politics in Ireland. However, by late 1169, Rory O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful king and king of Connacht, was increasingly nervous about the large numbers of Normans fighting for a man who had once been one of his greatest rivals. Indeed, it unnerved him to the point that he felt the need to act. Leading an army, he invaded Leinster, supported by Tiernan O'Rourke, his close ally, but also the, the kings of Meath and Dublin. All of these men were wary of a rise in Dearmid's power. They had all kicked him as he had been on the way down and no doubt feared retribution if he rose again. This massive force arriving in Leinster was more than a match for Dearmid and his now diminished allies, given the Prendergast had defected to Gilapatric. What would follow had the potential to determine Dearmid's fate. In 1169, it had been intervention from Rory that had seen Robert Fitzgodbert leave Ireland, and worryingly, as this army pushed from Connacht into Leinster, many of Dearmid's Gaelic allies saw which way the wind was blowing and began to abandon him. Luckily, 
for Dermot, Robert Fitzstevens did not have this luxury. Fitzstevens couldn't really return home. All that awaited him there was a prison cell. So, with what forces remained, Dermot and Fitzstevens now withdrew to an easily defended position outside Ferns. There, according to Gerald of Wales, he retreated with his followers within an area not far from Ferns, which was sealed off from sides by very thick forests, steep mountains, rivers and bogs, and which the nature of the terrain and its position made it extremely inaccessible. Here with Fitzstevens he set about felling trees and logs joined together, broke up level ground with deep pits and trenches, prepared for their own sallies, hidden and narrow entrances and exits by tortuous routes, and in short made the terrain passable for himself and impassable for the enemy. When Rory O'Connor approached this hastily constructed but nonetheless formidable natural fortress, he wasn't too keen on an assault. This obstacle course that sounds like no man's land from World War I with its pits and felled trees would be an easy killing ground for Norman archers. Even though Rory heavily outnumbered MacMurrah and Fitzstevens, attacking such a position could be costly. Rory though had a distinct advantage. He had the Normans and MacMurrah trapped in an albeit heavily defended spot, but still trapped nonetheless. He could simply starve his foe out and eradicate the Norman threat in Ireland. However, Rory O'Connor did not understand the situation unfolding before him. He had no idea about Strongbow amassing an army of over a thousand warriors in Wales. Indeed, having grown up and lived in the west of Ireland in Connacht, Ireland's most isolated province, Rory's knowledge and understanding of the Normans in general was limited. Now this led to a litany of naive and disastrous decisions by Rory who acted as if he was dealing with a minor interdynastic squabble in Ireland. He, however, was not. Indeed, according to Gerald of Wales, even at this early stage, the Normans had long-term plans in Ireland. According to Gerald, while Fitzstevens was trapped in the camp he had built with MacMurrah, he made a speech to buoy the spirits of his fellow Normans, in which he said, Perhaps the outcome of this action will be that the five divisions of this island will be reduced to one and the sovereignty over the whole kingdom will devolve upon our race for the future. While the wording of this speech is probably apocryphal, the author was related and did know Fitzstevens and his motives well. It's clear that even at this early stage, the Normans were envisaging conquest. Rory, unfortunately, hadn't a clue. Instead of dealing clinically with the Normans and MacMurrah now trapped, Rory was instead happy to enter talks and take submission from Dermot and then return home. Dermot's son Connor was the only cost. He was a hostage that would bind the agreement. Rory did stipulate that no more Normans were to come to Ireland and that those in the country should leave once Dermot had seen off opposition in Leinster. But this was an incredibly naive and stupid move. It had only been two years earlier in 1167 when he had fought and defeated Dermot MacMurrah and imposed a similar agreement on him and MacMurrah had just ignored it. The logical thing for Rory to do in 1169 would have been to eradicate the threat given he had the chance. I think though some of those with Rory would have had a very different perspective on this situation. For example, Askel MacTurkle, the King of Dublin, had brought troops on this campaign and he may well have counselled Rory 
to adopt a much more hostile approach to MacMurrah and the Normans. Ruling over the well-connected port of Dublin, MacTurkle no doubt understood the risks the Normans posed. Unfortunately for Rory, he didn't listen to Askel MacTurkle. Turning back west to his home in Connacht, he no doubt felt he had humbled Dermot MacMurrah. However, he didn't understand the game he was now playing. In reality, he had passed up one of the last great chances he would have to defeat the Norman presence in Ireland. He had been played a fool by the Normans and MacMurrah, who had successfully bought the time they needed. The most immediate loser was probably Dermot's son, Connor, being taken back west with Rory. It was his life on the line if his father broke the agreement. Soon, his life expectancy would be measured in days and months, as we shall see next when more Normans began to arrive in Ireland. Shortly after Rory O'Connor withdrew from Leinster, yet another force of Normans were preparing to set sail for Ireland. This was not yet Strongbow, but instead Morris Fitzgerald, stepbrother to Robert Fitzstevens. They shared the same mother, a famous Welsh princess named Nesta. Fitzgerald landed in Ireland with a hundred archers, 30 mounted archers and 10 knights and went some way to replacing the troops under Morris de Prendergast who had switched allegiance to Gila Patrick in Ossery. Indeed, no sooner had Fitzgerald landed than MacMurrah was forced to take action against Gila Patrick again. The King of Ossery, emboldened by his own Norman allies under de Prendergast, had attacked the O'Moores in Leash, allies of Diarmid. The O'Moores naturally turned to Diarmid for support and he was more than happy to answer the call. Supported by Fitzstevens and now his stepbrother Fitzgerald and their troops, he moved on Gillapatrick again, who was supported by his own Norman force. This bizarre situation seemed set to see two Norman armies fight each other in Ireland. However, at the last minute, Morris de Prendergast was unwilling to go through with the conflict. Fighting Gaelic kings for Gillapatrick was one thing, but fellow Normans was another entirely. Morris abandoned his newfound ally and made his way to the port of Waterford and left Ireland, crossing back to Wales. Now, with a more free hand, Dermot sent Morris Fitzgerald to harry the territory around Dublin, something that quickly brought the city into submission. They no doubt had seen what had happened to Wexford when it had been signed over to the Normans and probably feared a similar fate. This was a pretty important milestone. Only a few years earlier, Dublin had supported Rory O'Connor's campaign against Dermot and now the city had been forced to switch sides to Dermot MacMurrah, who was as powerful as he had been before his dramatic defeats of 1166, which had started this course of action. Now this brought an end to the first phase of the Norman invasion of Ireland, that is, to restore Dermot. However, almost seamlessly, this led to the opening of a new chapter which saw much more territory than just Leinster up for grabs. As Dermot took submission from Dublin, this was the clearest of signs to Rory O'Connor that he had been tricked and it was only a matter of time before his power as the most dominant king in Ireland would be threatened. Indeed, it would only take weeks for the first skirmishes of this new conflict to open. But that's where I'm going to leave it for now, folks. Tune in in two weeks' time for the next instalment to see what happens. Until next time, Sloan.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.